So how many of you remember the sermon from last weekend? Yeah, me either. (laughs) Howard Hendricks used to say, we have the potential of remembering 10% of what we hear. And that's just the potential. Another pastor believes we forget 95% of a sermon after 72 hours. So for us to remember... We need to hear things repeatedly so they get reinforced in our minds. I was reminded of that last weekend. We ended our services with a focus on the GoFund. A gentleman named Luke got up and he shared a statistic with us that I don't want to ever forget. And here it is, that there are 3 billion people in the world today who have no access to the gospel. And then on Sunday afternoon, we had a luncheon, and he reminded us of more truth, which we cannot, we must not forget. 97% of the unreached live in the 1040 window. That's a rectangular area between 10 and 40 degrees north latitude. It encompasses 68 countries in North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. 60% of the unreached live in countries that are closed to missionaries. And there are 400,000 missionaries in the world today, but of that total number, only 13,315, or 3%, are ministering to the unreached. And he ended that time with this bold statement. We either go ourselves, we send others who are ready to go, or we disobey. And this past year, by God's grace and through your generosity, uh, Edgewood gave 14% of our budget to missions. And over the last several years, under the leadership of Pastor Dan and the Missions Committee, we've been prioritizing partnerships with those going to the least reached parts of the world. And right now, one of our own members is trusting God to provide prayer and financial partners as she prepares to serve in Asia. Now, all of this is being reinforced as we've been going through the book of Acts because in the book of Acts, we're reminded that you and I are called to be witnesses, witnesses to our neighbors and to the nations. And that explains one of the reasons why we're giving regular updates and praying for a family from the Ukraine by name. Sasha and Sophia... The parents here are just 21 years old. Uh, Lucas is four, Emma is one. They were scheduled to arrive in the Quad Cities yesterday, but some paperwork held that up. Uh, Lord willing, they'll arrive this next weekend, and I understand that they're really struggling emotionally. They're tired. They've been displaced. They have family in the Ukraine. They haven't heard from some family members. And they're asking us to pray. So church, would you pray with me now? God, as we continue to watch and hear the reports of what's happening, uh, 
Lord, it's just, it's just too much. For many of us, we watch from afar and we are grieved and we're hurting and we don't know how to help. And for others, millions who've had to flee and others who are staying either to fight or are staying because they have nowhere else to go. Lord, we pray for your peace to prevail. Lord, we pray for hope to be restored, for those who are emotionally tired, for those who've lost hope, for those who are hungry and thirsty. Lord, we pray for those needs to be met. Most of all, Lord, we pray that you would mobilize your church globally and there in the Ukraine in ministries like Samaritan's Purse and the Ukraine Bible Society, like Word of Life, like Awana, like Celebrate Recovery, all the different ministries that you've strategically positioned there and in Poland and in Germany and other countries, Lord, we pray that Christ followers would shine brightly Uh, sharing the gift of Jesus Christ with those in desperate need. So we commit them to you, and would you prepare us to respond as we're aware of needs as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Uh, Some of you use your mobile device. That's great. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in front of you. We like people to see the Bible with their own eyes. If you're new to the Christian faith and you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as our gift to you. Here's where we're headed today. The Savior saved us, so we will speak about Him to those he sends us to. And I see some transferable principles in this passage. Here's the backstory. The apostle Paul now is witnessing to a king. That king's name is Agrippa. First thing we see is get someone's attention. It's important to find a way to get someone to listen to you. Let's see how Paul does it. So Agrippa said to Paul, I'm in verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. So Agrippa took charge here and he told Paul that he could testify. And amid all the pomp that we read about last weekend, Paul did not enter with the sound of a trumpet, but with the sound of rattling chains. He's been a prisoner for two years. He's got a guard at either end chained to him. And he comes in, and now he's before the king and the sound of rattling chains. He's not very impressive in appearance. According to tradition, Paul was small, he was balding, he had a crooked nose and bowed legs, kind of like me. (laughs) Paul wanted to make sure he had Agrippa's total attention. So what does he do? He stretches out his hand, and it really was an oratorical gesture. He would take these two fingers, fold them under, and go like this to the crowd, but in particular to the king. Now, why is he doing that? He's doing that to get their attention and and to communicate that he has something to say. It shows his earnestness. Would have been striking, by the way, because that arm was chained to a soldier. 
My family often teases me for using my arms and my hands and multiple facial expressions when I'm preaching. Actually, I talk that way at home as well. I'm always waving my arms around. In fact, when I had shoulder surgery a year and a half ago, I think my family wondered if I was ever going to be able to preach without the use of one of my arms. But, so when you're talking to someone who doesn't know Christ, try to get their attention in some way, even if you don't wave your arms around. <laughs> Number two, make a connection by paying a compliment. One of the best ways to make a bridge to someone is, well, to just be complimentary. Now, we see that in verses 2 and 3. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The word fortunate means happy. And notice how he refers to the king. He says, King Agrippa. Five different times in this chapter, he says, O king, or king, or King Agrippa. Why? He's wanting to show him respect. The Greek word for defense here is the word that we get apologetics from. Paul is defending what he believes and why he believes it. Now, King Agrippa, who was raised Jewish, was an expert in the customs and the controversies of the Jews. And so Paul said, Agrippa, because you're such an expert, would you please listen to what I'm about to say? Now, we've seen this principle throughout the book of Acts about being complimentary, to build bridges. My favorite example is in Acts chapter 17. Paul goes to the city of Athens. It's filled with idols, and he's grieved in his spirit. But instead of saying something like, you bunch of pagans, here's what he says, men of Athens, I see that you are religious, very religious in every respect. He looks for a way to pay them a compliment, makes a bridge to them, and then he's able to share the truth of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when you talk to someone, church, look for a way to compliment instead of criticizing them. Incidentally, this encounter is a fulfillment of the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 21, Jesus said, but before all this, he's talking about the end time events or what's coming Before all this, they'll lay their hands on you. They'll persecute you. They'll deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings. Paul's before King Agrippa and governors. We've read about Paul before Felix and Festus. For my name's sake, and Jesus said, this will be your opportunity to bear witness So church, get this, the Savior saved us so we will speak about him to those he sends us to. Well, now we see some repetition. Paul focuses on what his life was like before he met Christ. Verses 4 through 11, he made sure Agrippa knew how he lived before he was converted. See, Paul grew up with many of these religious leaders They would have been his classmates and colleagues even. Look at verse 5. They've known for a long time, referring to these religious leaders, 
if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. That word strictest means the straightest. As a Pharisee, he believed the Bible and he lived out it as best he could at the highest level of religiosity. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul summarized his spiritual resume. Listen to this. Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's like a favorite tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is establishing here, he's not some cult leader who had departed from Judaism, but rather was a faithful Jew whose hope was in the promises of God, which included the resurrection. We see this in verses 6 through 8. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope. My hope in what? In the promise made by God to our fathers, like the patriarchs, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now here, the word you is in the plural. So Paul's not just talking to Agrippa. He's talking to everybody at that point. Now, to establish his credibility with Agrippa, who came from a long line of Christian haters, Paul spelled out what he did to Christ's followers. Verses 9 through 11, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I said, I'm all for it. I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. He went in while they were worshiping and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So he talks about what his life was like before. Friends, the Savior saved us so we will speak about him to those he sends us to. Would you notice next, and this is a repeat of what we've seen in Paul's habit previously, specify how you came to know Christ. What your life was like before and now how. After he established his hatred of Christians, verses 12 through 13, Paul clearly states how he came to know Christ. Would you observe with me, beginning in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus, the capital of Syria, with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. So he's out to kill Christians. He's out to persecute, arrest Christians. He didn't see this happening. He didn't see this coming. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Paul was an authorized assassination agent empowered to kill Christians. And so on his way to do that, in the middle of the day, When the sun is at its brightest, a light with more lumens than the sun exploded around them. 
Friends, this was nothing less than the Shekinah glory of God himself. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, that would be Paul, on them a light has shone. Where after the light appeared, the Lord himself showed up. Verse 14, and when we had all fallen to the ground, by the way, you would have fallen to the ground too. Paul says, after we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now here he's referencing a Greek and Latin proverb, and it referred to how a young ox, when it was yoked to a plow for the first time, first several times, he didn't really like that. He kind of liked just being on his own. Well, now he has to work. And so the ox would kick back against the farmer who's running the plow. The farmer would have this prod, this sharp stick, often made out of wood, sometimes out of metal, and when the ox would kick, the farmer would jab the back of the ox's heel. Why? To let him know who was in charge. And the oxen had to learn submission that way. I wonder, any of you kicking back against the Lord today? You're like, God, I don't like what you're asking me to do. God, I know what you say, but I want to live this way. Are you kicking back? Listen, he loves you so much, he's going to make it uncomfortable for you because he wants you to come back. He wants your full and complete heart. Well, like a stubborn animal, Paul realized it's fruitless to resist the sovereign will of God Almighty. Listen to what Paul asked, verse 15. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Jesus reiterated this truth, Matthew 25, 40, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So here's Paul. He now realizes Jesus is alive. He's having a conversation with the resurrected Jesus, and he had been persecuting followers of Jesus. But Jesus said to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? But would you note that Jesus now commissions him to live on mission. I'm in verses 16 and 17. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose. What's the purpose? To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Listen, if you're born again, these two things are also true for you. You've been saved to serve him. Have you settled that? Your life isn't about you. It's all about him. You've been saved to serve him. And number two, you've been saved to witness for him. When Paul told his story, he emphasized how Jesus said these words, I am sending you. 
Now, verse 18 contains such deep truth. I'm tempted to pause and dive in deep. We don't have time, but so let me read verse 18 and just highlight some of the deep truths. Verse 18, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul referenced six powerful ways the gospel changes everything. First of all, because we're blind, he needs to open our eyes. That's illumination. And then transformation, we turn from darkness to light. Conversion, when we're saved, we're taken from the power of Satan to God. How about remission, the forgiveness of our sins? Participation, you and I have been saved and assured of a place, our final inheritance, and then finally sanctification. Once we're saved, we begin the process of being set apart for His purposes set apart from sin, set apart to the Savior. Now, would you note, Jesus made it clear that all of this only comes by faith in me. Literally, it's translated faith, even that which is in me. I'm reminded of Romans 5, verse 1. We are justified by faith. I love the cry of the Reformation. The scriptures alone teach us we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Friends, the Savior saved us. Why? So that we'll speak about him to those he sends us to. Would you observe next? Declare what your life is like now. Before, how, and now. By using the word therefore, he's linking how he was saved to how he's living now. Again, he gets the king's attention. He says, oh, King Agrippa. Notice a summary of what had changed in his life. Verse 19, he determined to be obedient. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Next, he called everyone to repent. Verse 20, Uh, Verse 20, the second half, he challenged people to live out their faith because grace produces good works, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. He gave credit to God for helping him. He linked the message of Christ to the Old Testament. Listen to verse 22. I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And he communicated the message of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. I'm reminded of what Martin Luther did after he was converted. He held to his convictions He's facing these religious authorities in this trial. There's also governmental authorities there. He's been accused of heresy. He's been told to recant. He responded by declaring these words, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. I mean, it's very obvious he had changed from a meek monk to a bold proclaimer of truth. The Savior saved us, so we'll speak about him to those he sends us to. Now, whenever you're witnessing, you've been in situations where you've been interrupted, haven't you? 
You're just having a conversation, and all of a sudden, it goes off the rails. Well, number six, respond courteously to interruptions. Paul is zeroing in on King Agrippa, but Festus, the governor, couldn't take it anymore. Verse 24 tells us he was fired up and fried up. Notice verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. That word loud means elevated and booming like an explosion. And because he was convicted, he ended up attacking Paul. He accused Paul of being insane. We get the word maniac from the Greek word he used. Let me just say, if you proclaim the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and you proclaim that Jesus is the only way, some people will think you've lost it. When Christ saved me in college, I remember my family thinking that I had either joined a cult or that I was crazy or both. (laughs) Some of you are in a family situation like that today. Christ has saved you by his grace. You're striving to live for him. You're trusting him. You're trying to have gospel conversations. And people are saying, you're nuts. You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. What's wrong with you? And so you're faced with all this blowback. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says we shouldn't be surprised. For the word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In John chapter 10, verse 20, the enemies of Jesus said this about Jesus. They said, Jesus, you are insane. Why listen to you? I was thinking about that, that if you're a Christ follower, you're called to live counter-culturally. There's a lot of things in our culture now, so listen. If you join the cultural stream of all the issues and all the things going on, you get swept away. If you say, no, here I stand, because this is what the Bible says, you're going to be swimming upstream, and that's hard to do. Once a month, I get together with other gospel-centered pastors here in the Quad Cities. We met again this past Thursday. I look forward to it. As we were together, we encouraged each other to keep preaching the truth of the gospel while proclaiming that marriage is one man, one woman for life, while proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to salvation, while calling our people to purity. And we ended by praying for our community. There's a lot of people in our community who don't go to church. There's a lot of issues happening in our community. And we ask God, to send revival and to do it by starting with us, with each of our respective churches. I left so encouraged, and I want you to hear this. There are a lot of gospel-preaching pastors in the Quad Cities concerned about the state of our community and the state of our country, and they are committed to preach God's word no matter what others may think 
of us. That should provide you with encouragement because each of you are called to do that in your context of relationships, on your campuses, in your workplaces, in your neighborhood, in your own homes. Now, verse 25, Paul defended himself. (laughs) I love this. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Notice he compliments him, but I'm speaking true and rational words. I wonder if that were you or me and somebody came after us like that, said I was crazy, out of my mind, would I respond gently like he did? When Paul was interrupted, he didn't water down the message. He didn't say, nah, okay, I don't really believe that. Nor did he explode back at them. But you notice he spoke clearly with a level head What's he doing? He's practicing something that's totally countercultural today. Proverbs 15:1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. So he handled this interruption with wisdom. Verse 26 shows how he took the focus now back to the king. Verse Agrippa, or verse 26, about King Agrippa. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Notice number seven. He utilizes a convicting question. Paul asks a very pointed question, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He doesn't give him much time to even answer the question. He says, I know that you believe. How does he know? Agrippa was raised Jewish. So in that sense, he had to answer, yes, he did believe the prophets. But if he answered yes, that he believed the prophets, well, then he'd have to say he believed in Jesus because the prophets spoke about Christ. We see that in Luke 24, 27. Jesus was helping two disciples see the link between the Old Testament scriptures and himself. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, We've been over this before, but it's worth repeating. Here are some questions you and I can ask when we're witnessing or we're trying to have a gospel conversation. First, where would you say you are on your spiritual journey? These next two questions come from Evangelism Explosion. If you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? How about this, when you die and you're standing before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And here's one more question which almost always gets a positive response after somebody has opened up to you. You could say, could I pray for you right now? Now, Agrippa didn't answer this pointed question, but instead said in verse 28, in a short time, Would you persuade me to become a Christian? I prefer the King James here. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? (laughs) Agrippa was close, but he wasn't quite a Christian. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to a scribe. The scribe is seeking spiritual truth. Mark 12, 34, Jesus said, You 
are not far from the kingdom. It's as if Agrippa came to grips with the gospel, but he never allowed the gospel to grip him. Listen, you can do holy things and think you're headed to heaven, but still end up in hell. You can be close to receiving Christ and still be unrepentant. You can be almost persuaded and still remain at an infinite distance from Christ. Let's be reminded, people were never passive about Jesus, nor were they bored with him. There's no way to just ignore him. He either made people angry or astonished, amazed, and in awe. People fought against him or they put their faith in him. And the same is true today. You'll reject him or you'll receive him. There is no middle ground. The eighth principle is so helpful because many of us are prone to give up when we're talking to somebody about Jesus, we're called to persist with patience. I like Paul's persistence here because it often takes people a long time before they're ready to submit to the Lord and be saved. Notice verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long. You see, Paul was thrilled whether someone was saved immediately or years later. Why? Because he was trusting God with their salvation. Verse 22, he testified to small and great. He could speak to the king and also speak to regular people. Every soul mattered to Paul, and every soul must matter to us. Whatever the age, whether they're pre-born or born, regardless of social status, race, ethnicity, gender, location, disability, situation, or place in life, no matter who it was or how long it took, Paul was committed to share Christ with everyone. I first met Bob at his father's funeral some 25 years ago. Bob was in a wheelchair, paralyzed from a diving accident that took place when he was a teenager when he climbed up on the roof of a garage and dove into a family swimming pool, breaking his neck, leaving him paralyzed and filled with bitterness. He was an angry, angry man. And I remember meeting him at his dad's funeral, and he wasn't interested in talking. Months later, Bob's mother called me and said, Hey, Bob's in the hospital. Would you mind visiting him? And I'm like, Sure. So I went to the hospital, I'll never forget, I went outside his room and before knocking on the door, I'm like, Lord, help me here. Because, oh, I forgot to mention, he didn't like pastors either. So I knock on the door and I come in and he didn't say anything to me. It was kind of an awkward conversation as I recall. 
Well, after he got out of the hospital, I decided to go and visit him at his house. I called his mom, and I said, if I were to visit Bob, do you have any recommendations for me? And she said, well, because he's in a wheelchair, he won't answer the door. The door's always open. Just go up the steps, open the door, and come in. And I'm like, oh. So I did that. I went up the, store, uh, the stairs. He, they lived in Forest Park, Illinois, uh, last stop on the L line, or I guess that's Oak Park. And I opened up the door, announced that I was there. I came in. He looked over at me. He glared, and he said, what do you want? <laughs> what are you doing here? Well, I'm thinking the same thing. What am I doing here? He's watching the Cubs game. He had this big, large screen TV. So he's in a wheelchair right in front of this um, screen. And I decided to sit down on the couch. He didn't ask me to, but I did. It's awkward at that moment. He's not talking. I'm not talking. I decide to watch the game with him for a little bit. And I started complaining about how the Cubs were playing. He and I became instant friends. (laughs) Our friendship got off to a slow start, but over the next several years, Bob and I became very good friends. But every time I would try to talk to him about Christ, he would push back. He cussed, his language was foul, he was filled with anger and bitterness. And every time I would try to talk about Jesus, he would push back. Until one day he said, Brian, I heard about a movie in Chicago and I'd like you to drive me there so we can watch it together. And I'm thinking, oh, what kind of movie is this going to be? And he said, it's about the rapture. You ever heard about that? And I said, well, yeah. And I said, okay, let's go. So I drove him in his van We went downtown Chicago, watched this movie, and he wanted to know what I thought of the movie after and if that is really taught in the Bible. It opened up some great conversations, and I I remember pleading with him, Bob, you don't want to be left behind. You want to make sure you're ready when Jesus comes back. He continued to push back. While he could understand some things, he wasn't interested. And for years, I stopped by to see Bob nearly every week until we moved to Rockford. We were ministering in Rockford. We'd been there several months, and Bob's mom, Helen, called me and said, Brian, Bob's in the hospital, and it doesn't look good. And so I decided to drive from Rockford to the western suburbs where Bob was in the hospital because I wasn't sure he was saved yet. I remember walking into the hospital, having some flashbacks to a time I had walked in. This was a different hospital. When I got into the ICU, I could tell things were very serious. He was on a ventilator. And I told Bob that I didn't want him to die and not go to heaven. And I explained to him what Jesus did on the cross for him and the importance of repenting and receiving the free gift of eternal life. And then I said something like this, Bob, are you ready to trust Christ for salvation right now. Now, he couldn't talk because of the ventilator. He's paralyzed. And so I said, Bob, if you're ready, would you just blink your eyes? And I'm looking, I'm leaning over the bed, and he blinked his eyes twice. 
and I had the joy of praying and asking Bob to pray along with me and leading him in a prayer of salvation, and he died a day later. Friend, the reason I tell you that, don't give up on that friend or family member who's pushing back, who thinks you're weird, who thinks you've lost it, and they're just tired. They don't want to talk about spiritual matters anymore. You keep praying and looking for ways to bridge to the gospel because God has put you in their life on purpose for his purposes. The Savior saved us, so we'll speak about him to those he sends us to. Would you notice next, Paul calls for commitment. He's got a passion for people to come to Christ. In the second half of verse 29, let me read all of it, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So Paul's like, yeah, Agrippa, I wish you were saved, but I don't wish this part on you. Which made me think Agrippa's dressed in royal robes while Paul was in a tattered robe. Paul was chained on the outside, but free on the inside. Agrippa? Well, he's free on the outside. He's just living for his own self, for his lusts, his pleasures, but he's in bondage on the inside. He's pulled by pleasure on the one hand and pulled by pride on the other. Finally, number 10, trust God with the results. (laughs) This has happened to you, right? You're trying to talk to someone and all of a sudden the conversation shuts down. It's got this like abrupt end. Look at verses 30 and 31. Then the king rose (laughs) and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So instead of getting saved, they blinked and walked out of the room. Instead of taking the final step of salvation, they just walked away from the Savior. Friend, Whenever we witness, trust God's providence. Sometimes conversations blow up before it even gets going. Other times it goes off the rails. Sometimes it ends in conversion. Other times it just ends abruptly. That happened to Beth and me this week. <coughs> On Tuesday night, we went through a drive through And this very polite young man handed me my order. And when he did, he said, be blessed. Well, then he handed me Beth's order, and he pronounced a second blessing on us. He said, be blessed. I smiled, and I said, are you a Christ follower? He bluntly replied, and he said, no. So I regrouped. And I decided to ask a more general question. I said, well, do you believe in God? Followed by a very firm no. Well, now I'm thinking this might be a gospel opportunity. So we identified ourselves as followers of Jesus, and I asked him a question. I said, how would you define a blessing? And he said, oh, it just means I wish you well. 
I told him I found that interesting that he wished a blessing upon us, but he didn't follow Christ or believe in God because God is the source of blessings. And just as I was trying to get into a gospel conversation, he pushed back and he said these words, this isn't the best place or time to talk about this. (laughs) He just shut it down. There were no other cars in the drive-thru. He just was done. And when we started to pull away, I wondered if he was going to bless us a third time. I kind of drove slowly, kind of waiting, and we lost that blessing because he simply said, have a good evening. (laughs) Friend, that's happened to you. What do you do? Do you get mad? Do you get frustrated? Maybe, especially if you love the person, you want to see them come to Christ. But listen, trust in the providence of God. Trust God and keep sharing Christ. See, the Savior saved us, so we'll speak about him to those he sends us to. We can do that by following Paul's paradigm. Let's summarize. Get someone's attention. Make a connection by paying a compliment. Explain what your life was like before you met Christ, how you came to know Christ, and what Christ is doing in your life right now. Then respond courteously to interruptions, and interruptions will come. Utilize convicting questions. Persist, but do so with patience. Call for a commitment, and then trust God with the results. Now, let me circle back and ask you, whether you're engaging online or right here in this room, a few convicting questions. Are you not quite a Christian? Have you almost accepted Christ? Are you close to being converted? But you know you've not yet repented and received Christ. Are you striving to be religious, but you don't have a saving relationship with Christ? Are you nearly persuaded, but you've just been procrastinating? Listen, hear me. It's time to repent and receive Christ so instead of being almost saved, you can be altogether saved. I'm going to invite you now. I'm going to lead in a prayer and invite you to just close your eyes. If you don't know Jesus yet, this could be your time to get to know him. You could pray this along quietly. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner You are the Savior. You died in my place. You rose again on the third day. And I want to respond to you. I repent. I turn from how I've been living. And instead of kicking back at you, I submit and I surrender to your leadership, to your lordship. Jesus, come into my life Save me from my sins. Transfer me from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Jesus, you are the resurrected Christ and you've come to save me from my sins. And so I need to, I want to make me born again. I receive you by faith alone, in you alone. Make me into the person you want me to be by enabling me to lead a sanctified life. 
Help me to follow you faithfully for the rest of my life and to help others to do the same. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, I'd love to chat with you after the service and give you some material to get you started in your walk with Jesus. Listen, whenever we share the gospel with somebody, whenever we strive to live for Jesus, there's opposition. But it's time. It's time for us to take courage and to speak about the Savior to those he sends us to. Opposition. Nobody wants to be opposed. The follower of Jesus Christ does not want to be opposed. But opposition is exactly what we're promised. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Opposition is what separated Joseph from his family and threw him into a prison. It's what pushed Moses and the Israelites up against the Red Sea. It plotted the genocide of God's people in Susa during the time of Esther. Opposition towered over a shepherd boy with a slingshot, and it came out in droves of soldiers against the King Jehoshaphat. Elijah stood opposed by 450 prophets of Baal. Opposition executed God's prophets, beheaded John the Baptist, and stoned Stephen outside the city. It presses in on the church today, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But do not be scared. Take courage. The enemy hates those who fear the Lord. We know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air and oversees spiritual forces of evil. He orchestrates and motivates many forces against the follower of Jesus Christ, but fear him who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. Steady your heart in the fear of the Lord, firm in the promise of his salvation. Do not be scared. Take courage. It was courage that allowed Joseph to wait with patience in his prison until the appointed time of Israel's preservation. It caused Moses to part the Red Sea so they could walk on dry land. Courage accompanied Esther into the throne room of the king to save God's chosen people and took down a giant with a smooth river stone. It filled Jehoshaphat to rout the Moabites and Elijah to call down fire from heaven. Courage gave John the Baptist faith to make a way for the Lord and Stephen to see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Courage led the Son of Man to Golgotha, where opposition made its final stand and fell defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's courage that fills us today to resist the enemy, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. Opposition will come, but stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's take courage, fellow Christians, for we stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. I came across another study this week about how best to remember a sermon. People remember 70% of what they see, what they hear, and what they write down. 
That's why we provide sermon note sheets every weekend. You can get those at either of the resource kiosks. We also email those out on Friday afternoon. If you'd like to have those emailed out, you could contact the church office. They're also available on your mobile app. But people remember 90% of what they do. So as a way to put the preaching into practice, it's our joy to send out a team of servants who will be serving Christ in the country of Belize. They leave next Sunday morning. They'll be building a structure that will be used by a second team from Edgewood. They'll be going down this summer. That second team will hold a vacation Bible school in the building that these guys are going to be constructing. And so, guys, if you're in this service, I'll read all the names, but come on up. Let me stand right over here. Matt Williams, Bob Donshi, Ben Hodge, Dave Browning, Austin Loud, Quinton Waterman, Jerry Thomas, Bud Lyford, and Randy Bivens. Come on up front here and we'll spend some time praying for you. As they're making their way up, are there any, is there anybody here in this service who's going down to Belize on the second team? I think there's some sitting. Could you stand up? Yeah, so they're going to go down over on this side and that side. Yeah, let's give God glory for that. So why don't you stay, stay standing, if you will, for the visual of this. This is pretty amazing. And Pastor Dan and Pastor Kyle, thanks for your leadership on, that, on this. These guys, who all are hardworking guys, who have experience in the trades, are going down to build a building where the gospel will be presented not just this summer, but the building will remain for the church to use. And we get the joy of, oh, there's two right here too, we get the joy of sending them out and praying for them as they go. So church, why didn't everybody stand now uh, so that you all, as you look out, know that we're with you as you go. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the privilege that is ours to go and to send. And Lord, now as these men go, they're saying no to some things here. Some of them having to take vacation. There's a cost involved in every decision as they leave loved ones, as they trust you with the finances that this is going to need as they trust you in another country, in a place that's hot and where the work will be challenging, where the tools will be few. Lord, would you encourage each one and bless their obedience? Lord, would you give them unity as a team? Would you help them to work together well to bring you glory? Lord, as people from Belize watch them work and perhaps even assist them, may they see Jesus in each one of these guys. And Lord, may their labor in you not be in vain. Lord, we pray that they'd be able to build this structure so that others who are going down this summer will be able to present the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Lord, what a privilege to be involved in what you're doing around the globe. 
We commission them now. We commission ourselves. As we leave here, we've gathered. Now we scatter. Help us to live on mission for your glory and your honor, for the fame of your glorious name, we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen.